Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our story. And it's how our story fits into the biblical story, not the other way around. You see, we recognize that oftentimes we have this tendency to live the way we want to live, to sort of write our own story. And then in order to make ourselves feel better, we overlay some principles from the Bible or even some stories from the Bible that sort of justify how I want to live. But the fact of the matter is, is that Scripture tells us it should be just the other way around, that we need to look to Scripture first and then conform our lives to what Scripture says, to have the understanding that Scripture has and then to conform ourselves to that. And one of the things that you'll see in this, uh, in this focus season is that this story has to all fit together. Uh, and basically what I mean is, is that there's a, a progression from one thing to another. In fact, I think there's a danger in starting partway through the story. For instance, I don't think you can fully understand the fall without understanding first that we are made in the image of God. See, without that, it's very easy to take on this ancient pagan view or even the view of some Christians today that we are just insignificant, that we are sinners, that we are rotten to the core, that we are cogs in the machine of nature. So we have to understand that we are made in the image of God and then we understand the impact of the fall. In the same way, you can't, I don't think, understand the depths of God's love for us until we understand our fallenness. You see, without the fall, without the knowledge that we have of our participation in the cycle of sin, we might be tempted to believe that we deserve God's love. We might be tempted to believe that uh, God loves us because we are perfect just the way we are. No, the fact that God sees us as we are, both as image bearers, but also people who are fatally flawed, who have failed to live up to and have sometimes outright rebelled against him, and yet, and yet he is still relentless in his pursuit of us, it gives us an amazing picture of the character of the God that we serve. And so if we want to live into that biblical story, then we have to hold all of those things together. Now, there are times when I would like to say that our society believes this story or that story, but the truth of the matter is, is I, I think the, the, uh, the quote that we've been using from Stanley Hauerwas at the beginning of your focus book is, is absolutely right, that in general, people today don't really live by any kind of a defining story. We just kind of take bits and pieces of life that we want, and uh, we, should, we believe that we should be able to, to write our own story. We tend to see ourselves as isolated individuals. Uh, and we have a tendency to deny many parts of the story that we've been given that we, have to, that we have to live into, and instead we try to write our own story. And I actually very much believe that this is what's behind much of the isolation and feeling of worthlessness that many people feel today, the, the rise in, in suicides and just people who are living uh, depressed lives. And so many people believe in a God of their own creation, and so we're just floating out there without any real anchor, without any real uh, understanding 
of who God is. And on, on the surface, this kind of a life sounds very freeing because we can determine our own destiny. And yet in the end, it leaves us wanting. And the reason is, is because even with the greatest freedom in the world, we still need an anchor. We need something that will help us to keep our bearings as we navigate life. And so that's what this story does. It gives us an anchor. Well, today I want to continue the story by looking at the next movement, and it's this, that the grace of God doesn't just save us, but it transforms us. Okay, now, this message runs contrary to some of the bumper sticker theology that we see these days. One of them is, is that we are just sinners saved by grace. Or uh, there's another version of it that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You guys have probably seen that bumper sticker around, haven't you? Now, I understand the reason for that bumper sticker, right? It's a, it's a message to the world saying, hey, I know Christians have done some really terrible things, and actually maybe the Christians in your life don't seem to be very good people, but then again, we don't claim to be perfect, right? That's, that's kind of the sentiment of, of that bumper sticker. It's to counteract the, the sort of holier-than-thou attitude that Christians are sometimes accused of holding. And there's a sense in which this kind of thing is true. We are sinners saved by grace. We are uh, forgiven, not perfect necessarily. But I'm not sure that Jesus intended for us to save face by lowering the standards that he has for us. I mean, maybe Jesus was serious when he told us, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Maybe he was serious when he said that people will believe that we are his followers by the love that we have for one another. Maybe, just maybe, God doesn't just want to save you, but he wants to transform you. Last week we talked about the fact that God pursues us even in our sin. Even before we get our act clean up, he died for us while we were still in our sins, when we were hopelessly broken. Broken. But we also have to understand that the biblical story tells us that he doesn't want us to stay that way. You see, the way I see it, the biggest problem with the idea that we are just sinners saved by grace is that God doesn't just pursue us so we can live in our broken and sinful lives to struggle with addiction and brokenness until eternity. The Bible tells us that God wants to transform us. And that's why he says in, thing, in uh, passages like Mark referenced, 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It means that God wants to restore us to the image that he created us to be in. Now, of course, that brings to mind then two questions. Well, what does it look like when we get there? How does God transform us? Okay. Does he want to raise our IQ? Does he want to heal our bodies? Does he want to improve our culinary tastes? You know, what, what does God want to do in us? What does that transformation mean? And the second question is this, how does it happen? And, and that second question is really important because the truth is, is I know many Christians who believe that God can transform them, who believe that God wants to transform them, but for some reason, they still struggle with the same sins over and over and over again, year after year. And so today, I have a modest goal of answering those two questions. What does that kind of transformation look like, and how does it happen in our lives? Now, the Wesleyan Church is a denomination that is what we call a part of the holiness tradition. 
uh, which means that we very much believe in this idea that God wants to transform us and that he does that work to transform us. And I absolutely believe that that is right and it's good. Okay, but just like any other movement, it's sometimes been subject to bad interpretation or even some bad theology. Uh, a few years ago, I was, I was teaching in, uh, in Sierra Leone in a, in a Bible school there that, uh, that would be, I guess, considered evangelical, but probably uh, in the holiness tradition as well. But during our class discussion, there was a bit of this underlying debate about something that was going on at the time called the holiness movement uh, in Sierra Leone. Uh, and, uh, and it was a big controversy, and, and you know, the students were talking about it uh, in the class itself. And one day after class, a student who was, who was a part of this movement, who had very much bought into this holiness movement, came up to me and said, you know, uh, Pastor Corey, I'm very concerned about what's happening in America. And, uh, and immediately I thought, well, wow, that sounds serious. So let's talk about it. What are, what are you concerned about? He said, is it true that women wear pants to church. And I thought, well, it gets pretty cold in, uh, in Minneapolis, and if they come without pants, it would get kind of cold. So, you know, I guess it is true, right? Uh, but, of course, that's not what he was talking about, right? Because so, part of the holiness movement was, was that women were not supposed to be wearing pants. They were supposed to be wearing skirts or dresses and all the way down to the ankles. And so we had a discussion, and I won't go into all the details of the, of the discussion. It got kind of involved, right? Uh, but that's what, that's what holiness meant. And of course, there's a principle behind that, a principle of modesty and, and all of that. But, but it, it turned into this sort of legalistic, uh, rules-oriented sort of thing. And, and that was actually very much the, the holiness movement that I grew up in, or at least that I picked up. I don't, I'm not sure if it was explicitly taught, but it was at least caught um, in the moment, that we don't go to dances or movies or play cards, certainly no drinking or, or smoking. And, and these were all of the, the external markers of what it meant to be holy, to be transformed. But we had old saints in our church who, in many ways, were, were great, um, in many ways had great testimonies of what God had done in their lives, and they wore long dresses, and the men wore suits every week, and they would decry the state of the world. And they were also incredibly unpleasant to be around. And they were hard on our pastors because they were critical of everything that the pastor did, anything that didn't meet their standards or expectations. And like I said, they certainly had some good qualities, but as I looked at them as sort of the examples or the model for holiness growing up, they were not people that I very much wanted to be like. Because I thought, is this what it means to be transformed. Well, I think if we want to understand what it means to be transformed, then we have to get to the heart of sin, of, of what it is. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the cycle of sin. We talked about it from a sort of big picture worldview. But when we zoom in uh, a bit, we can see how sin plays, in, plays out in our lives. And what I've seen is that sin tends to be an illegitimate way to meet a legitimate need that we have. Okay, think about it this way. Now, we know that we all have some pretty basic needs. We're human, and uh, so we have some basic needs. So we have a need for security, for instance. 
Uh, you might never have thought about this before, but we all have a, a need to feel a sense of innocence, a, a, a sense of moral peace, if you will. This is the, the feeling that we have of being justified before God and before other people. We all have a need for peace. In other words, we weren't created to live in a constant state of chaos. And when you live, in a, in a, when you live a life like that, it, it creates some trauma. It actually does some things to change your brain. All right? We, we need peace. We also need intimacy. In other words, we were created to love and to be loved. We have a need to feel significant. We need to feel that our, that our lives matter. Okay? These are all needs that we have that make a difference. And I'm sure that you could come up with others, uh, but these are all some of the basic ones. But because of our broken world and because of our broken needs, uh, we try to meet these needs in unhealthy and sometimes very destructive ways. So for instance, our need for security, uh, we resort to greed and hoarding and workaholism and pushing other people down so that we can be lifted up. To meet our need for innocence, we psychologize sin, or we actually sometimes even just deny its existence, and we just say, well, everyone's okay. To fill our need for peace, we do so with comfort or familiarity, resisting even good change for the sake of keeping things predictable. We exchange intimacy for sex. To find significance, we resort to things like power and pride. But when we resort to these counterfeit ways of meeting our needs, like Augustine said, even our desires themselves start to become distorted. And this is part of the, the cycle of sin. And when we sin, we settle for less than what God created us for. And so if sin is our attempt to meet, Ill, meet legitimate needs in an illegitimate way, then holiness or transformation is a reordering of these desires. It's learning to be able to fulfill these needs in God-honoring sort of ways. So for instance, if Adam and Eve sin in the garden was their illegitimate way to gain wisdom and significance, then holiness is an increasing ability to trust in God's way. And trust that God's way will meet them. So for instance, to meet our need for security instead of greed and hoarding and workaholism, we put ourselves in God's hand and we trust that God will provide. To meet our need for innocence instead of denying sin's existence, we have a, a willingness to confess our failures and to rely on Jesus' cleansing to make us whole. Instead of finding significance in power or pride, we find it in humility and service. Instead of filling our need for peace with comfort or resisting change, we allow God to lead us even if that leads us to uncomfortable places. Instead of trying to fill our need for intimacy with sex, we meet it with worship. And so what I hope you see here is that while there are some rules involved, and certainly scripture has some rules and some principles for us to follow, holiness is not just about following these rules. It's a change of a heart orientation that God does in us. Because following the rules doesn't satisfy our deepest needs. They are at best the surface solution that only pretends that we have our needs fulfilled. In fact, the core of holiness is to realize that every need that we have can be fulfilled in Christ. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul was saying in our passage today from Colossians chapters 2 and 3. Okay, now, now commentators don't know the exact 
heresy that the Apostle Paul was trying to counteract in the book of Colossians. It seems like some form of Gnosticism that said that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And so it seems like there were some false teachers there that were proclaiming that or prescribing some kind of asceticism. In other words, to avoid any kind of pleasure uh, because you're more spiritual when that happens. So they said to deny certain kinds of food or drink or sex it's an in its entirety. But the Apostle Paul's answer was basically to say, well, these things are beside the point. They're, they're a category error. They don't really have anything to do with holiness. And that's why he writes in, in Colossians 2.23, he says, Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they seem to be wise, but in reality, they're only surface behaviors, but don't really get us to the heart of the problem. Transformation has to go deeper than that. So in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul starts using language of putting on, taking off and putting on, taking off and putting on, or putting to death and bringing to life. You see this language, not just in Colossians here, but you see it all through the writings of Paul. And when he uses that language of taking off and putting on, it might lead us to believe that holiness is a matter of women taking off pants and putting on a dress. But Paul is actually talking about taking off and putting on some internal attitudes and characteristics. So for instance, look at the list that he points to here in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly, earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all, thing, all these things such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Okay? And so what we see here is there are some external things here. There are some behaviors that we see, but there are also some uh, attitudes of the heart. Okay, and so we see things like lying and filthy language. Okay, but the point that Paul is making here is that these outward behaviors are simply a reflection of the state of our heart. And we can tell this because the prescription that Paul makes is not just external behaviors, but it's a change of, of what's happening on the inside here. It isn't just a matter of giving things up. It's about replacing things on the inside. Look at verse 12, and this is the prescription here. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to notice here about this. Okay? The first thing is, is that while there is some personal morality here, uh, we see uh, in, in verse 14, you know, the Apostle Paul tells us this, uh, 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 sorry, uh, there is some personal morality here, and, and he, we see this in the, in the list of virtues, and actually we could go to things like the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about things like peace and joy and self-control. 
but the vast majority of Christian virtues are actually social. The vast majority of them are relational ones. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another, forgiving. All of these things are relational traits. And if you looked at the other virtue lists and sin lists all throughout the New Testament, you'll see a similar thing, that this is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. In fact, the primary language of transformation or primary gauge of transformation into Christ-likeness is actually relational. In fact, look at verse 14 here. The Apostle Paul tells us, he says, this is the overriding principle, right? If, you don't, if you're going to you know, go for one principle, it's this one. He says, over all of these virtues, put on love. And love is a relational word. Okay? It binds them together in, per- in perfect unity. And, and this should also sound familiar because if you go to Jesus' ministry, when the, when, uh, when the teachers of the law came to Jesus and asked him, what's the most important commandment? Remember, he said two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. We see this theme all throughout the New Testament that holiness has to do with love. It's about how we treat other people. In fact, a lot of times, the, the personal morality uh, that, we, that it calls us to have is in virtue so that we can love better, so that we can love God better, so that we can love others better. And that's the first thing, okay? The virtues are most often relational. Now, here's the second thing, and this is where we start to get into the how-to. I want you to see that holiness is not just about running away from something. It's running toward something, actually toward someone. See, holiness comes through our relationship with God. What you have to understand is, is that when we run toward God, when we run toward Christ, He is the one who makes us holy. Okay, we don't overcome sin by trying to overcome sin. It would be like uh, going on a diet and trying to lose weight by not thinking about food. Have you ever tried that before? We don't overcome sin by trying to overcome sin. We overcome sin by running to Jesus. Holiness is not our work. It's the work that God will do in us. Okay? And the work, the mechanism for that is something that we call grace. Now, we use that word a lot in church circles. But here's where I want to use my favorite phrase from Inigo Montoya of The Princess Bride. I do not think it means what you think it means. This is grace, all right? And I think we understand, misunderstand it in a couple of different ways, okay? The first way is that we think that grace only has to do with forgiveness. It only has to do with getting us to heaven. But it's actually, hopefully you've seen that already, is that it's more than that. It's about transformation as well. And the second thing here is that we think grace is unconditional. Now I've got your attention, don't I? Because this is a pretty common thing, that we think grace is unintentional. But I, I'm, I'm going to explain here, all right? Now, I, I talked about this a couple of years ago. In fact, I looked it up. It was November of 2018. Um, and so I think this is, it's probably time that we go over this again, because I think it's really important. A, a few years ago, a scholar named John Barclay wrote a book that has become, and, and if you ask many like New Testament scholars, What's the most important book, the most, uh, the most uh, influential book in the last 50 years? Uh, he will, they will, many of them will mention this book, a book called Paul and the Gift, and I don't recommend it. 
Um, and the reason I don't recommend it is it's like 700 pages long, and it's very dense theological and historical language. All right. Now he did. I did. I just found out actually that it, within the last couple of year, uh, couple of months, he put out another book that's a popularized version of it call, called Paul and the Power of Grace, and that one I would recommend. Uh, if you're not into reading heavy, deep theology, don't get the first one. Get the second one, Paul and the Power of Grace. Um, what he says in the book is that the word for grace in the New Testament is simply the word charis. Now, we think about grace as a religious word, but actually when Paul started using it, it wasn't a religious word at all. It's simply the word gift. It is the, word that was, the Greek word that was used for Gift. It was an average, everyday word. And so Barclay uh, got an idea, and he started to look into uh, what the word gift would have meant in Paul's day. Because one of the things that you'll have to realize is that we tend to look at the Bible through modern, Western, individualistic eyes, and the way we think about gifts is very different than traditional cultures or collectivist cultures think about gift-giving. And, and as he studied this, what he found was that the traditional collectivist cultures think about gift-giving very, very differently than we do. Now, there are some things that are similar uh, about giving gifts. Uh, there are some things about gifts that we think uh, make a gift good or, or perfect. We, he, uh, Barclay calls them the perfection of the gifts. But in other words, what, what makes a gift a good gift? And, uh, and, and so there are, there are a few things that are similar. For instance, one is what, we, what he calls the priority of the gift, right? When, when someone gives a gift without being prompted. Okay, if we have to ask for a gift, then, you know, like if you're a, a wife and it's your anniversary, anniversary and you have to say to your husband, are, are you going to get me an anniversary gift or this is what I want? It doesn't mean quite as much as if, you know, he goes out and gets it on his own. Um, or if someone says, you know, I was just thinking about you today and just appreciating our friendship, so I decided to give you this gift. That's a great gift, isn't it? That's something that makes you feel really good, okay? The second factor is the cost of the gift, okay? The, the more the gift costs the giver, the purer it is. In other words, we might enjoy it when someone gives us a trinket or a card or something like that, but if someone saves up for months in order to give us an extravagant gift, we are just filled with gratitude. We know that they really love us. Okay? The third fact, a third factor is what Barclay calls incongruity. In other words, we consider a gift purer when it's given without thinking about the worth of, uh, the, the, whether the person is worthy of the gift. All right? So in other words, we would say that a gift is more pure when it is unmerited. They didn't do anything to deserve it, but we just gave it. Okay? Now, you can see in Scripture a lot of this that has to do with grace. Uh, um, in fact, the Apostle Paul would have had these things in mind when he was thinking about God giving us the gift of grace, which, by the way, is redundant, right? Gift, grace, same thing. Um, for instance, uh, God took the initiative and offered grace even before we asked for it, right? Romans 5.8 says, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a priority of the gift. He says, and he talks about the lavishness and the cost of God's gift. It's so incredible. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that God showed us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
And then actually we just need to continue on in the next two verses Verses there in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, that Paul says that God gives us the gift even when we don't deserve it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All right, so you see all three of those elements in, the, in, in grace that God gives to us. And so when it comes to these three factors, we are in total agreement with Paul. We think that's great. But Barclay says that modern Westerners place another condition on a pure gift. In fact, for us, this is probably the most important condition on a gift. And it's that a gift is given with no strings attached. Right? In fact, we are suspicious of people who give and expect something in return. But here's the key for him. He says that the idea of a gift given without strings attached is a modern Western idea that would have been completely foreign to the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul would have thought just the opposite. I want you to follow me here, okay? You see, in Paul's day, and even in traditional cultures today, the purpose of giving a gift is not just to be nice, but a gift was intended to establish or maintain a relationship. Okay, if you give someone money, your intent wasn't necessarily to get money in return, but it was to get loyalty or especially friendship. To give a gift to someone meant that you wanted to be identified with them. I know some of you will remember this story because some of you made fun of me for, uh, for telling it a couple of years ago. But uh, when I was in high school, I was, I was pretty self-absorbed. Um, I didn't always know what was going on, but I remember that there was a girl in my class who was a friend of mine, uh, not close friends, but we kind of ran in some of the same circles, uh, part of the same friend group. And again, I was pretty oblivious to this, but apparently she kind of liked me. And um, because one day when I had a basketball game after school, she actually followed me out to my car and she gave me a single red rose with a note with it. And, uh, and the note just said, good luck in your game today. And she signed it and gave it to me personally. And I thought she was just being nice. I, I thought, uh, you know, she really wants me to do well in my game. And uh, so, so uh, I was pretty oblivious to the whole thing. And I'm not, sure, I'm not exactly sure why I even remember this, I guess. But I didn't think about it at the time. And it was only after a couple of decades of uh, I started to reflect on it again. But I remember saying thanks, taking the flower, getting into my car, throwing it in the back seat of the car and driving to my game. And it was wintertime, and so it stayed in the car for a number of hours, and it died immediately, which I guess is kind of a metaphor, right, for our, for our love, right? Now, I didn't realize it at the time, but in hindsight, I realized that by offering that flower, she was intending to form a relationship. She gave it to me because she wanted to identify with me. And looking back now, I realize how vulnerable she had made herself and how insensitive and uncaring and self-absorbed I was. All right, now think about it this way. That flower is how Paul would have thought about God's grace. It's not given just to be nice, but it's given to start a relationship. See, in Paul's day, people didn't just give gifts indiscriminately. 
because they knew that whoever they gave the gift to, they were identifying with. And so, in fact, the, the, the Roman historian Seneca had a, wrote a whole treatise about who you should give a gift to and who you shouldn't give a gift to. You know, they were selective because gift-giving impacted your reputation. And so when Paul says that God gives us the gift of grace, it means that God wants to identify with us. Think about that. That God wants to identify with us. He gives us grace not just to set us free to go do whatever we want, but to form a relationship with us to motivate our our loyalty, and we don't deserve the gift. And there's no reason why we would think that God would want to be associated with sinners like us, and yet he offers it to us anyway. You might say it this way. God's grace is unmerited, but it's not unconditional. In fact, to accept the gift of grace and go on living as if God were not even there is like saying, Okay, God, I'll take your gift, but I'm really not interested in relationship. I want the benefit of the gift without the friendship. And that's kind of a negative way of expressing it. So let me turn it around and say this. The relationship is the gift. Now here's the key. Do you realize that relationships change us? You've probably experienced it before. You've seen it before. We are transformed just by being in virtue of relationship with someone. They say that when you've been married to someone long enough, you start to look like them and you start to act like them. Has that been true for you? I think that's true. I think we can see it. Well, the same thing is, is true with Jesus. Okay, when you're with him long enough, you can start to become like him. Now, I suppose that's true for other things too, right? If you're with CNN or Fox News long enough, you become like them. If you're with Netflix long enough, you start to become like it. And you can extrapolate that out to, you know, whatever whatever else we spend our time doing, okay? But if you have cultivated an ongoing intimate relationship with Jesus, he changes you. Now, of course, this means taking personal time in the Word, in prayer, in worship. In fact, don't forget about personal worship. And we, wor- we worship here through song and all of that. Do that on your own too, okay? Because it's in those times when we're able to submit ourselves, not just our minds, but also our hearts to Christ that he transforms us. So it's not just a, a corporate thing, but it's also a personal thing, okay? But here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul actually talks about this relationship more in communal terms, Um, All of the yous that he uses are are plural in there. And and you see, what's true about Jesus is also true about his people, or at least it's supposed to be, okay? If you are with people who are like Jesus long enough, you become like them, okay? So for instance, look at what he writes in verses, uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful, Now notice, he's talking about living the kind of life that he calls us to, only doing it in community with each other. The community of the church is where we practice these virtues in an environment of grace and truth. 
Okay, and then he continues, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Here he's talking about worshiping together as a community, and that includes teaching, teaching that I'm doing, teaching that Mark is doing. You know, we, we say it's for the kids, but it's not just for the kids, is it? Right, we, we know that. Right? And Carrie and Abby and the others who get up here and do a, a kid's message. Okay? This is what we're doing. We're teaching. And we sing together. We, we worship together. Um, and as we do this, our individual stories are integrated with each other's stories. And then our story as a church is integrated into God's story. We're incorporated more and more into Jesus' story. As we spend time together and as we spend time with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what he's saying here is, is then when we leave this gathering and we go out from here, whatever we do, okay, we do as people who are continually being transformed into Christ-likeness. Okay? So it's not just important to spend time with Jesus here. But it's also important to recognize that even when we leave here, even when we're at the grocery store, when we're at work, when we're with our family, that the Holy Spirit is there, that Jesus is there walking beside us. And so we should be spending time with him even there. We should be uh, practicing his presence as if he were right beside us. Because you know what? He is. And so the point is, is that God's act of grace is inviting you into an ongoing relationship. And it's through that ongoing relationship that he starts to make that transformation in you. And so the question then is, and this is what it really boils down to, are you cultivating that relationship on a daily basis? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way that it convicts us. We, we even thank you for these lists of, of vices or lists of sin in it. That we can recognize, that we can look at ourselves and we can sort of evaluate, what is my life like? Do I, do I look like Jesus or do I look like something else? Do I look like something that the world tells me that I should be? Am I trying to meet the, the needs that I have in my life in illegitimate ways? But God, I, I pray that you would get us beyond this thinking then that the way to holiness is just refraining from certain things. But that we would see holiness as entering into a deep relationship with you. God, that, that you would be transforming us as we spend time with you as individuals, as we spend time with you corporately, as we read the word, as we uh, talk with one another, and, and process life together with one another, as we worship together, as we spend time in prayer. God, I pray that our hearts would be open, that it would be more than just a ritual that we do when we come together, or more than just a habit that we have when we get up and uh, read the Bible. But it would truly be a way for us to spend time with you and allow you to transform us more and more into your likeness. God, help us to, to get beyond the sort of simplistic ways that we oftentimes think about holiness. To help us to develop 
holiness as a, a deep love for you and a deep love for people. God, as we spend time with you, I pray that you would be transforming us, that we wouldn't settle for being just a sinner saved by grace, but that we would be sinners who are being transformed by that grace. So God, I pray that you would make that a reality in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.